Let's start off this week with a bit of a hot take. We are a people surrounded by lies living in a culture of falsehood. Every day when you walk through the world, you are hearing competing worldviews vie for your attention. And one of the reasons why the gathering of the church is so important every week is that it grounds us in reality. See, the congregation, the preaching of the word, the singing of hymns, and the taking of the Lord's Supper might be the only time all week a person hears truth straight from the mouth of God, right? The church needs to be the place that says, God is true and men are liars. Don't be fooled. You were created in the image of God and were made to live out his purposes with your life. Yes, you were a sinner, but God in Christ, but, but by God in Christ, you are now a son of the living God. Therefore, trust and obey his word above everything else. So what we do counter what we do as a congregation is meant to counteract the lies of the world that we hear. But it doesn't stop there. See, we aren't just passive observers of the lies of the world. We are participants as well. See, of all the lies we hear and speak, I think we lie to ourselves the most. I believe this is the case because we as believers in Christ, being born again, we have a clear sense of morality. We know right from wrong. We know what we should and shouldn't do, and no one wants to be the bad guy in their own life story. And so what happens is, I believe, we start to, to tell ourselves another story. We construct a false narrative to excuse our actions when they are motivated, not by a desire to see God glorified, but by our own selfishness. All sin is, after all, inherently selfish. It sets ourselves above God. It sets our preferences above God's preferences. But it doesn't stop there. The tendency for self-deception goes even deeper than ourselves. So if we like to lie to ourselves, if we like to excuse our sin because we, like to, because we don't want to be the bad guy in our own story, well, the devil loves to make us feel okay about it. He loves to assure us that you are in the right for what you're doing. He loves to assure us that you're just having a hard day, that you're really not a bad person, that you're really not a sinner, that you just see things differently. These are all lies that the devil speaks to us. Uh, Jesus said himself, he does this because he is it is, comes naturally to him. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 8 said that when the devil speaks, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So, all this is to say, guys, make no mistake. There is a war going on. God has called us to live in the great freedom of his truth, but the world, the flesh, and the devil are all competing for our devotion. If all this is fighting against us, then we have to ask the question, how on earth do we fight back? So if the world is against you, to some extent ourselves are against us, and the devil himself is against you, how on earth are you supposed to fight this? Well, that's what I want to show you today. So up front, let me give you the big idea. If you remember anything about this sermon, this is what I want you to remember. We overcome lies with the truth of the Bible, okay? If the world is telling us lies, the Bible 
is God's weapon to overcome the lies of the world. So, for the past three weeks, we've been studying 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, if you recall, is the last letter Paul ever wrote. He's in prison awaiting execution, and he writes to Timothy, who's basically like his understudy in the faith. And he says, and he explains to basically to continue to fight the good fight, as he says, strengthened in the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is, it will take more strength than Timothy has in himself to persevere. And the same thing's true of you. Paul knows this, and so he tells Timothy to entrust the ministry of the gospel to other faithful men who will do as he and Paul before them did and will carry the message even in the midst of suffering. That's what he's writing for him to do. And so today we pick up in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Paul knew that we were engaged in a war for the very souls of people. The stakes cannot be higher, guys. When we say that we are at a war, we don't mean what we don't mean we are in a lesser war. See, wars are fought which men die and give their lives for. We're in the midst of a war that is, has the highest stakes. It involves the very eternal souls of people. And so the stakes couldn't be higher. And this paints a picture. Now, if you know me, you know uh, that I am a giant movie buff, which is the only time the words giant or buff would ever be used to explain me. Anyways, of all the movies I love, I don't know that any inspire me more than movies about war. Now, this could be like uh, things that are somewhat based in reality, like maybe like Saving Private Ryan that's fictional, but it's based on a real war, or like epic tales like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and things that convey this dynamic battle of good versus evil. And one of the things I love about the idea of a war is that whether fiction or nonfiction, war somehow shows what's really in a person, okay? It's a situation where heroes emerge from unlikely people. The bad guys are clear, at least in a just war, and the mission is what matters. So Paul presents this scenario to that Timothy will face in these terms. So today what I want to look at as we read this word and we talk about it is who are the heroes, who are the villain, villains, who are the victims, and how do we defeat uh, our enemy? So with that said, let's jump into it. And what I want you to do is simply, with your ears open, listen and understand, listen to the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and laid astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. 
verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you learned, you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how you from childhood have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as I said, this is a, this is a great war, an epic battle. And here we see villains, uh, we, if we begin with the villain enters. Uh, I think of a lot of great movies, like I said, a lot of great movies introduce their antagonist before their protagonist. They want to show you the threat is, gr- is great and should be taken seriously. And so he begins by introducing us to the villain. Verse 1 and 5. Verse 1, it says, In the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, I'm planning on making a uh, cutting room floor video on this because it involves more time than I have to spend on one verse. But what last days is Paul speaking of here? Now, our go-to reaction is that he's saying the end of time, right? So in the end of time will come times of difficulty. However, that doesn't necessarily fit the context here. See, what he was speaking of here, what I believe, is that the Bible speaks of different ages and that there was an age that was coming to an end, specifically the Jewish age, where God displayed his plans for redemption through the people, the Jews, And what was beginning was a new age, which is also often referred to as the church age, where the message of God and the gospel was declared through his people, not necessarily a regional area like Israel, but through his people, the church. Uh, For example, Peter spoke of false uh, teachers that would arise in the last days as well. Second Peter chapter three, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. I, in both of them, I am stirring you up Uh, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Uh, Peter said those things that were present there were already present in their midst. Um, Also, Peter, speaking at Pentecost, uh, quotes the prophet Joel. People start speaking in tongues and prophesying. He says, This, verse 16 of Acts chapter 2, this was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even of my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This was 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. Peter said this was a sign of last days. So, it was the beginning, it was the end of an age and the beginning of a new one. Now, what does this mean? Why does this apply to us? Well, 
It should not surprise us that at times of great change, tensions arise, okay? Here's the thing. We are living, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty apparent that we are living in a time of uncertainty. That the way that we may have lived life before is not necessarily the way it will look going forward, okay? And so I think there's comparison here in that just as we are seeing a massive cultural shift in our day and age, we should expect that hard times will come as a result of it. People don't react to change well, okay? And so when the world starts changing, stuff goes, uh, stuff gets crazy, all right? Uh, this is a common theme. Paul's point is that due to the uncertainty of the time, charlatans will arise amongst the church. So if fake, if uh, fa- fakers, I was about to say fakey fakers uh, in, in the faith, if people who are charlatans, snake oil salesmen, are going to arrive in the church, how do you recognize an enemy of the faith? Well, he tells us in verses two through five, the same way you would recognize a brother or sister in Christ by their fruit, their character, right? So he goes through this long list of explaining all these things about them. They're puffed up with conceit. Uh, they, they're abusive, arrogant, proud, ungrateful, heartless, all these things. These traits stand in stark contrast to the characteristics of a pastor that uh, Paul gave in 1 Timothy. Basically, these are the anti-pastors, okay? These are the false teachers. These are the these villain, villains function in that way. So the question is, how do these false teachers attract people? Right? So, like, why do these people attract people? What is it about them that 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 actually is useful? Well, it says in verse 5: they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Take note of that about that, guys. False teachers have the appearance of godliness. That is to say, they bear a resemblance to what is good, but something is just off, okay? One of the things that I think we get uh, caught up on is we think uh, temptation and the devil always appears wearing a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. That's not how it works in the Bible. The Bible says false teachers, false prophets, they look godly on the surface, but there's something missing. Specifically, Paul says, they deny its power. That is to say, they deny the very power of God, okay? So something that looks good on the surface, but denies God's active presence in it, that is what he says to be on the lookout for. These are effectively the self-help gurus of their day. Because instead of saying, God, we trust in God for our power, we say, look to yourselves for that power. Understand this, guys, evil thrives in deception. And so the goal is to look just close, the the goal of evil is to look just close enough like the truth that it slides by, that it slides through the cracks, okay? So that they can twist the truth and lead people astray. Paul says, avoid them. And I would add to that, don't, uh, don't give your precious time to those who are simply trying to twist the truth. And don't give them a platform to lead the sheep astray either. So that's the villains. That's the enemy. That's the problem we face. Verse 6 through 9. Who do these villains prey on? 
See, they're predators. Let's just call them what it is. People who twist the truth aren't nice people with good intentions who, 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 are, just, who are simply misled. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're predators. Verse 6, it says, For among them are those who creep into the households and capture weak women. Okay, this does not leave, by the way, this does not give mean guys are somehow uh, not prone to being uh, tricked by false teachers either. However, this was probably what they were doing in Paul's day. Specifically, they were probably finding widows and people like that uh, who were in a more susceptible state and taking advantage of them. They prey on the vulnerable. That's why he doesn't just say that they, he says they capture weak women, okay? Paul compares them with the magicians in Egypt who tried to minimize the plagues by recreating the miracles Moses did. So if you read Exodus, basically some of Moses's miracles he would do, and then there were magicians who would be able to kind of recreate the trick. Now, uh, whether or not this was something they were actually able to do, or it was like uh, like a a sleight of hand, we're not really certain. What is clear is that they did this to to prey on the impressionable. See, on face value, their tricks looked like the miracles Moses performed, but they lacked the power of God, okay? By the way, their names are given here, uh, Janus and Jambres. If you read Exodus, it doesn't give their names. This was just something in, in history, in Jewish history. If someone wasn't named, they would basically just give them a name over time. And so this was widely accepted as like the magician's names. It could have been like Steve or Ted or something. It doesn't matter. Anyways, so don't go, I say this, so don't go searching through your Bible looking for their names. They don't appear elsewhere in the Bible. So they, it says they prey on the weak, the vulnerable. What makes them vulnerable? Well, Paul, Paul explains. He gives three characteristics here. First, guilt. They are weighed down with their guilt or burdened with their sins. Guys, understand that you were meant not to simply feel guilty, but to take that guilt somewhere, specifically to the cross, to confess it to the Lord and to be relieved of that guilt. People who don't do that set themselves up. They make themselves weak. They make themselves susceptible to attacks. Then he says that they are led astray by various passions. That is, they have unchecked or unbridled desires. Understand, guys, just because something sounds like a good idea, just because something makes you happy, just because something makes you feel good, doesn't mean it's something worth pursuing. We are meant to keep our desires in check. And then he says they lack theological grounding, or as he says it, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Okay? They lack grounding. They lack root. They're the kind of person you meet that says, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual or something like that. And what they mean is, I take a little from column A and a little from column B and I put it together and that's what I believe until something new comes around. Guys, we're not meant to simply be searching around uh, for our for uh, for answers to our questions forever. We're supposed to understand those que- the answers to those questions, the answers to our faith, and be grounded, rooted in those things. Here's the good news. Get, God has given us everything we need to combat all these things. To not be weak men or women in the faith, but to actually be strong. So, those are the villains. Those are the victims. How do we fight them off? Well, in verse 10 through 13, we see heroes emerging. 
we see that the legacy is passed down. Verse 10 through 11, it says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. See, Timothy was familiar with Paul's story. He saw how God was able to deliver him from his past troubles. And then that Paul reminds him of this so that Timothy would have confidence in God's power. Remember, the false teachers lack a belief in God's power. So Paul reminds Timothy of God's power in delivering him from all his troubles and, and preserving him so that he would comp- have confidence and you and I should have confidence as well. Now, this is the scene, I, like I said, there, this is something that is passed on from one person to the next. Paul is passing the torch on to Timothy here, okay? This is every, this is every you know, quintessential movie moment here. This is uh, Obi-Wan passing on the lightsaber to Luke and things like that. This is, you know, this is what we're seeing here. And so the hero, these are the heroes in our story. And then we should expect opposition in the midst of war. Verses 12 through 13. See, Paul's confident of two things he says here. You will get pushback for your faith and that false teachers will make themselves known. Why do I think that? Well, it says it. You will get pushback for your faith. Verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want to point out the word, a specific word there. All. Not just some. Not just the ones who try to pick a fight. All who strive to live a godly life are going to face opposition to their faith. That's everyone in this room. And then he says, false teachers will make themselves known. So, as you get pushed back for your faith, it's going to become apparent. But also, those who are trying to distort the faith, it will be apparent as well. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says they go from bad to worse. So, when a false teacher emerges, understand this, guys. It's not going to get better. They're, they're, they're not going to somehow drift back towards Christian truth, okay? That takes repentance. That takes, uh, that takes a new eyes. It takes conviction from the Holy Spirit. No one naturally starts out as a false teacher and then drifts into the truth. It always works the other way. And so by also, I point out that by calling them imposters, Paul reminds us of something really important. They are not your brothers and sisters in the faith. They are not real Christians. Guys, I gotta be honest, sometimes as as churches and Christians, we try really too hard to try to argue people into the faith. Not like, I don't mean argue with them. I mean, we try to give ourselves reasons that even though they show no fruit in keeping with repentance, no sign that they are actually a believer, even though they don't rejoice in the truth, we go, ah, he's a good guy. There was this one time years ago, they had a proud, they had a profound experience. Well, that's great. What's happened since that experience? Are they growing in the faith? Do you see more of the fruits of the Spirit emerging in their life? If not, guys, we do them and ourselves a disservice by, by pretending that such people are actual Christians. We set ourselves up for an attack by, by letting imposters in the door, and we do them a disservice by telling them they are a true believer when the Bible gives us no reason to have that confidence, okay? 
He essentially say, is saying here, they'll go from bad to worse. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, give them time and they will basically expose themselves further. So even at first, a, a false teacher seems like a questionable teacher. Give them time, they will show themselves for who they are. And then last, how do we fight this? We know who the, the villain is. We know who they're taking advantage of. We know who the victims are. We know those who are the, the, the warriors, the heroes in the story. What's the weapon of our warfare? Simple. It's the Bible. Verses 14 through 17, he says, But as for you, continue in that which you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us the famous verse. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, Paul isn't giving Timothy any new information. He says, you've already got everything you need. I'm not giving you the secret teaching I held back from you all these years. I'm telling, I'm reminding you, stay with what you have already learned. Same is true for us. By saying all scripture is God-breathed, in other words, not just the parts we personally like. Every word in that book you hold is not there by accident, but because God has brought it about to be there. He says it's God-breathed, that is, it did not come about by accident. See, in Genesis, it's humanity that receives the breath of God and comes to life. Thus, the Bible is unique. Just as humanity was, was breathed into life by God, and that makes us unique, made in God's image, thus the Bible is unique from any other writing because it alone is God-breathed. See, there's an intimacy of God's involvement with the composing of Scripture that is unique to it in its very nature. And then Paul explains, what do you do with this Bible? How do you wield this sword? He says, four ways. The Bible has four uses. It instructs us. It convicts us. It turns us back in the right direction. So that means when you're going on the wrong path, it's the Bible that turns you around in the right direction. And it makes us strong through preparation. That's what he says. It's for training in righteousness. Training takes time, guys. It doesn't come easy. See, the Bible isn't always comfortable but it's able to accomplish exactly what God intended it to do. And what is that? Simple, to make you godly. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. Other translations literally re read perfect, equipped for every good work. The implication is that we are all a work in progress, guys, but God has more in store for us. See, no one is born a fully formed Christian. It takes hard work. It takes time. And he says that you have been made so that you, you, the goal is that you would be a man of God, equipped for every good work. Clearly, God expects his word to actually produce something in our lives. That means no truth is useless truth, okay? There is no truth just for the sake of knowing truth. As you know the truth, it leads you into godliness. And you will be ill-prepared for a godly life, guys, without first becoming a student of the Bible. This is why we teach the Bible in here, week in and week out. I go to the text. I want you to know, 
It's not my words, it's God's words. He's the one who made you. He's the one who called you to this purpose. He's the one we trust in. So what should we take away from all this? Well, this is a victory for which God has given us everything we need for victory. We know the battle. We know, we know what side we're on, or we know what side we should be on. We know how to fight the enemy. Understand that God has not left us empty-handed. The, the apostle P Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us and to His own glory and excellence. Guys, God has not left you. God has not abandoned you out on the battlefield. He has not dragged you out here to die. He will fight with you. He will fight for you. And He will give you what you need to fight. There's nothing that you lack at your disposal to win this war. God has provided everything we need. And then most of all, how has God done this? He himself has already won the decisive victory on our behalf. John the Apostle puts, uh, puts it this way. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Guys, it's scary to know that the world, the flesh, and the devil are at war against you. But take courage. None of them stand a chance against God. Christ has already won the decisive victory by going to the cross and rising from the dead. God has given you his word. He has given you his spirit. He's given you, uh, he's given you each other, the community of believers. And the world, the flesh, and the devil doesn't stand a chance. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. For you are strong and powerful and good. And God, you have called us to fight the good fight, to be strengthened in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have provided everything we need. Lord, teach us to use your word properly. For through it, we, are, we, we overcome the lies of the world. God, your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. Teach us to live godly lives that we might honor you with them. And God, we trust that the victory is already won, and so we go out to claim it. Lord, be glorified as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.